from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Lily Abercrombie. Lily is a 90-year-old woman who became a Baha'i in the 60s in the South as a result of her son becoming a Baha'i. She talks about the effects of segregation on the Baha'i community at that time. You can hear her son Rick in the background helping Lily in the interview. I started the interview by asking Lily where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Honeyer Pass, South Carolina, which was a small town, and I was raised up in, in Greenville County. Well, it wasn't only in South Carolina, the South. It was very hard for people of color, very, very hard especially if you had families and boys. I, things have changed so much that I thought I'd never live to see. It's just amazing to me how things have changed. And, uh, you know, it was just bad for, for us, for the black people. You know, you couldn't get a decent job. You, It was just, it was just, Hard. It was hard living. Lily, when were you born? I was born May 24th, 1921. Being 90 years old next month. Can you describe for us what it was like in your neighborhood and your family and your religious upbringing? Well, my religious upbringing, we were members of the Baptist Church. And the, the grandparents seen that you went to church and Sunday school every Sunday. That was a must. And, uh, and we were even members of the Baptist church when we heard about the Baha'i faith. It's, our educational system was very bad. You had the little, when I was young, we had the little one-room schoolhouses. And you probably had to walk a long distance to get there and back. And it was just it was just hard. Obviously you grew up in a very segregated environment. Did you Oh have... yes, very segregated. Very. And did you have any interaction with whites at all growing up? Well, growing up when we were small I said like six and seven, and uh, when we became eight years old, I remember thinking the the little white friends that we played with had moved away. I didn't know, you know, when we got a certain age, we couldn't play together anymore. So from your perspective, you thought they moved away, but in actuality, they weren't allowed to play with you anymore. That's right. That's right. So growing up, when you went into middle school and high school, were you still in a one-room schoolhouse? No, 
when I got, got high school age, we went to, we had one black high school here in Greenville, and in Greenville County, and and that was Sterling High School. I I went to Sterling High School. We had moved out of the country into the city, and uh, I was able to go to the high school, but we only had one. Going back to your interaction with white folks, did you have any more interaction with white folks in uh, middle school and high school? No. So it was completely segregated? Yes. So when was your first encounter with white folks then after being a little kid? It was uh, the Baha'is. And when was that, Lily? Ricky, what year was that? 1960, what was you, 14 years old? You know, we had been taught to be very careful of what you said and what you did with white people because we were taught they would take it and make something else out of it and you could be in serious trouble. So we we didn't even try to have any reaction with them. My grandfather, his uh, mother was white and his dad was a Blackfoot Indian. And his relatives, his white brothers, visited him, but they were grown-ups, you know. So we had no reaction with them. What did you do after high school? Well, after high school, you know, I had a job. Uh, I was a nanny for three white kids that I practically raised. And that was my job. In those days, you either was a cook or or nanny or you, that was about it. And some was, we had some teachers, you know, or or a preacher. And that was about it for the jobs until later years. So it sounded like you actually did have some interaction with some white folks before you became a Baha'i, uh, being a nanny for a white family. Yeah, but that was just one family. Yeah, and what was that like, Lily? Well, now, they were very nice to me. They mm-hmm. were very nice to me. The children loved me, and I loved them. And I practically raised them. But I wouldn't consider that as having a re- action because I was a servant. So tell me about how you uh, ran into the Baha'i faith. Well, my 14-year-old son, you know, I insisted that my children go to church on Sunday, by the school. Just one moment. How old were you? You weren't 15 when you heard about the faith. You sure? <laughs> he just reminded me. I thought he was about 14. <laughs> he reminded me he was 15. Oh, there you go. And he went to a fireside. He's supposed to been going to a birthday party, I think. And it turned out to be, well, it was a birthday party and a fireside. And it was a white doctor who was the speaker. And he was talking about religion and this and that. And my son was furious. He said, as 
prejudice and all the things they had done to black people. How could he try to tell some black people about God? But when he came home, and he did, I don't think he said anything about it that night, but he, 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 he was going back to have his say. And when he went back to a far side, Eulalia Bobo was speaking. Who, who was that? Eulalia Bobo. She was a great Baha'i. She was the sister of Joe Lewis, who they called the Brown Bomber. He was the champion Boston yes. for a long time. And, I, and she was speaking. So he asked her these questions about the dead coming up and the flesh getting back on the bones and all these guys. He said she answered every question that he had, and it made sense. And he said, and it's the truth. I said, how do you know it's the truth? Because you don't read the Bible. <laughs> and he said, I know the truth when I hear it. After he talked with her, it just put him at ease. And uh, he just changed overnight. We didn't know what to think about it. We were worried because we thought he was getting involved with some kind of cult. And uh, so I asked him to invite the Baha'is. I wanted to meet some of these Baha'is, and he did. And I, I couldn't see anything wrong with them. They were lovely people. The first Baha'is I met was, as I say, Eulalia Bobo and Joy ben Dr. Joy Benson. And I found out later that her husband was a lawyer, she was a doctor, and and she could not get a license to practice medicine because she had black people come into her home. And the lawyer was blackballed because of the same reason. And it was very hard for them, they, but they remained steadfast. And after uh, my son changed, so he just changed overnight. He was very loving and kind because he had a temper, and I worried about that. I had a bad temper. And he was so kind and sweetest thing I'd ever known. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just had to find out more about this. And, of course, the, he started inviting the friends to come, and we had five sides here. And, of course, you can imagine what happened when we start having white people come in the neighborhood. It was it was terrifying. Lily, tell me about why it was terrifying. Well, because to the whites it was against the law for blacks and whites to meet in the same place socially. Now you could work, but don't socialize. Some... And, of course, they would stop people coming here and charge them for a speeding or, or just anything. But things changed. I remember my husband. And the taxi drivers would sit and watch at the corner who was coming to this house. My husband's contract, he was a building contractor, and his contract was canceled. But it, 
And but it didn't cause we after we realized who Baha'u'llah was, we accepted that and we didn't let anything stop us from having meetings here. So Lily, the white folks coming to your house was actually jeopardizing the community and yourselves because it was in a sense breaking the law of yeah. by integrating. Of course, but people came. They came. Did the black folks in the community resent the fact that this was going to... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They thought I was, we were cause and going to cause trouble. Serious trouble. You might mention that only 15 years prior to that, before next election. Did Rick want you to say something? Well, he just was saying five years before that. Fifteen. Fifteen years before that. The boy who lives next door to me was electrocuted about a white girl. And they were saying, which one of their sons would be next? And I'm telling you, I could, but I could understand why they were upset with me. I could understand that. But we eventually won them over. So some of the neighbors uh, started getting interested in uh, what was happening at your house? Yeah, mm-hmm. but at first there was all kind of rumors, you mm-hmm. know. Like what? Like we were having wife swappings going on here, <laughs> orgies going on. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and they said my husband and the lawyer, the white lawyer that was here, they said they started the, this religion. <laughs> And it was just a lot of crazy stuff. Mm. <laughs> I guess, Lily, I'm a little curious. How is it that uh, Rick got even in contact with the Baha'is, being that... Uh, I tell you, he, went, he thought he was going to a birthday party. So it was a birthday party. A little girl that he liked. Uh, the, the, the Baha'is were having her birthday party. So he was going to the birthday party. And they did have a birthday party. But then they had this speaker who was a white southern guy, but he was a doctor. Yeah, he was working for the white family. And she was working, kind of babysitting for that white family. But it was, it was just amazing how it happened. But I had prayed so hard because, you know, I worried about him. But uh, it finally... My husband was the first one. I said his, he was the first one that his eyes came open. <laughs> oh, even before, the, even before Rick? No, Rick was the first behind. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he, he found out that he couldn't sign his card till he was 15. Mm. And so he went to, was it Augusta? Augusta, Georgia, and signed his card. Because mm-hmm. there was no assembly in South Carolina. I see. I see. No assembly. And uh, it was about a year after my husband made his declaration that I made mine. So what finally convinced you to uh, jump into well, the water? you know, I'd been reading some of the writings, and they had all the kind of, you know, uh, pamphlets and everything. But what really, what really got me was the hidden words of Baha'u'llah. Now, what are, what are the hidden words? The sacred writings. 
of the Baha'i faith. And you really loved the writings? Yes, I did. You know, I had thought about making my declaration, but I figured I'm not spiritual enough. When I'd read them writings, (laughs) I said, that's not me. But it was Mr. Kadema. He said to me, he said, if you want to swim, do you think you can stand on the bank and learn how to swim? He said, you have to get in the water. And I was saying, well, I'm not spiritual enough. And he said, well, nobody is perfect. He said, uh, if your heart leads you to do it, do it. And I did. And I realized after then is we grow. I know we'll never be perfect, but we can grow to be good people and good Baha'is and try to follow the teachings of Baha'u'llah, mm-hmm. try to follow teachings of God. So, Lily, tell me about what Rick was like before he ran into the Baha'is. He was a holy terror. <laughs> tell me more. Well, well, he was, as I said, he had a bad temper, and he tormented his brothers and sisters. He was just, I said he was a problem child. And even in school, the principal was calling me about what he was doing and this and that. But when he, you know, accepted the Baha'i faith, he just changed overnight. And we didn't know, we first thought, Maybe he's having a nervous breakdown. (laughs) But, you know, it all worked out in the end. And that was how we heard about the Baha'i faith. It was through him. Did you see a change in your husband? Well, now, my husband, he was, uh, you know, he had a mind of his own, and he was in the Bible, and he believed what he really believed, he wasn't believing what Jesus said, he was believing what the preacher said. And then he become disgusted, even before we heard about the Baha'i faith, because some of the things that was going on in the church. When he left, he wanted to tell the church, get up and make a talk, and tell them why He had accepted the Baha'i faith. They wouldn't let him talk. They wouldn't let him talk because he was like a trustee and and something else of the church. I can't remember what it was. And they thought he would come back if they would come and visit him and talk to him. But, you know, he wasn't going back. But, you know, the people that, like the cops that would, Park in the driveway and all of this. I'm going to know what was we drinking in here. <laughs> and we, uh, the kids would invite them in to come in. They never did come in. And you know, all of a sudden, my husband stopped the bus driver who passed right by my house. He stopped him one morning and told him about the Baha'i faith. And after then, they stopped putting people out to watch the house. 
And I said, it was something changed them, and I'm sure it was God. He changed them because they were making trouble, you know? So I don't quite understand, Lily. You're saying, they, what, what do you mean by they, they stopped putting people out to watch the house? Well, they would have taxi drivers to sit up at the corner so they could see who was coming in my house. Oh, I see. Yeah. And then the cops would sit up there and watch. And if they wasn't at the corner, they were, were down, down the street where they could see the house. And we knew they were watching the house. But, you know, I didn't care about them watching. They were watching the driveway. Yeah, they'd park in the driveway. Were you a, a homemaker? Yes. During that time period? Yes. Yeah. How about after the kids grew up? Well, after the kids grew up, I was too old to be anything else. <laughs> 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 so, so, Lily, let me ask you this question. I guess I have a couple, more, a couple of other questions. I guess the first one I is uh, how would you say the Baha'i faith changed your life, the direction you were, you were going in your life? Well, for one thing, when I recognized who Baha'u'llah was, I didn't, I didn't worry. I was more at ease. And I was always a good person, and I was kind, and I never did anything mean to anybody. I was kind to everybody because I had love for God's creation, no matter who they was. But, you know, some people I couldn't get close to, but that don't mean that I didn't love them because they were God's creation. But the thing, the main thing to me was it took a burden off of me. I didn't have to worry about my children so much, especially my son. Because I felt like they would be protected. Because they all became Baha'is, all of my children. All of my grandchildren are Baha'is. I got up 30-something. And all of them is Baha'is but two. And the little great-grands are coming along. <laughs> How old were you, Lily, when you became a Baha'i? I must have been in, your... in my 40s. Okay, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was guessing. Uh-huh. I must have been in my 40s. Now, what was your parents' and siblings' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? They were happy. They were very happy. Your mother became a Baha'i. And my mother became a Baha'i, but she thought I was crazy in the beginning. And your sister's son and daughter. And uh, my niece and nephew, I had a sister, one sister. Her son and her daughter became Baha'is. And he was 11 years old when my husband spoke at a fireside in Detroit, Michigan. And he asked his, after the fireside and everybody went home and everything, my sister said to my 
No, my mother said to my sister, did you understand anything Charles was saying? She said, no, and nobody else understood it either. And my 11-year-old nephew, he said, Mama, you and Biggie called his grandmother Biggie. He said, Mama, you and Biggie didn't understand what Uncle Charles said, what he was saying? And they said, no, nobody understood it. He said, well, I did. (laughs) And when he was old enough, he came to Greenville to sign his car. Yeah, and he was just 11 years old, and he understood it. So what year, Lily, did you become a Baha'i? Uh, it was, was it 62? 62. So this was in the uh, height of the civil rights era. Oh, yeah. But you know, I had a chance to teach a lot of people that I, I was never seen before that, was, that traveled through here. I didn't do any marching. But I would give them, feed them, and give them a place to sleep, and they'd be on their way the next day. They were on their way to Mississippi and Alabama, all down in there. So the Baha'i community was probably the only integrated social environment that existed in your area? Oh, yes. We couldn't even find a place to meet. Couldn't have a we could have found a place if only the blacks were meeting, or we could have found a place if only the whites were meeting, but they were not going to separate themselves. So, Frog North, South Carolina, if that's St. Helena's Island, that was the only place we could go as an integrated group. The only place that we had we could go. And this had been an old school for the masters, outside children. We could go there and have the whites and blacks to meet there. But we had a wonderful time there. I was grateful that we had a place that we could meet. Now, my house and the other family, the white family's house, we could have meetings at our house, but it wasn't big enough to have all the white. Because Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina, and North Carolina, they all worked together at that time because it was such a few of us. And so we needed a a bigger place other than a house. This was okay to have summer school committee meetings or winter school committee meetings or any committee meeting, but uh, for us all together at one place, coming from different places. That was the only place that we could meet. Now, you referred to these uh, meetings in which Baha'is talk about the Baha'i faith called firesides. Now, did white families or black families host these firesides, and when they did, were they integrated? Yes, they were integrated in the home. That's the reason they were giving us such a hard time, because they said we were breaking the law. And that was true whether you were in the white neighborhood or in the black neighborhood? That was true in both neighborhoods. The white families was getting trouble, and the black families, because they were having white and black. I had white and black here. 
and the traveling teachers could spend the night here. And what was the worst that you had seen as far as repercussions as a result of having these integrated meetings, whether in the white neighborhood or in the black neighborhood? Well, my thing was like my black neighbors did not understand what the Baha'i faith was about. And I was sorry that I had upset them and made them unhappy. I was sorry about that. But I couldn't stop doing what I was doing because they didn't understand. And, of course, as I say, my husband, he canceled, got his contracts canceled, but he thought that was great because now he said he didn't have a job so he could travel and teach. And that's what he did. So how were you able to support your family? Well, for one thing, we wasn't extravagant. We were managed, We managed to... Because, you know, he made a good salary for his work. He got paid good for his work. And he had a farm which he raised the vegetables and the beef and the chickens and the everything. And uh, the, although we didn't live on the farm, but he had somebody else that lived there in the house that he had built. And they took care of the things for him. And, of course, he went down and worked the farm, worked on the farm, too. We had plenty of food. We could feed everybody. And our house was paid for. So all we had to be concerned about was the light bill and the water bill and telephone bill. And I, I could sew. I could make the children's clothes. And so we, 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 it, that part was not hard for us. That was the easiest part. He did a lot of traveling, teaching. And, uh, of course, I kind of stayed here because the Baha'is, I guess we were kind of centrally located. And, you know, they couldn't stay at a hotel. So my house was available for them. And, of course, the Benson's house was available also. You had mentioned, I think, was it a white lawyer that got blackballed because he was having these integrated Baha'i meetings? Yeah, he couldn't even get a job. He got blackballed. And she couldn't even practice medicine. They wouldn't give her license to practice medicine. And she was an excellent doctor. Now, you didn't see any violent repercussions as a result of the Baha'is having these integrated meetings? No, not any violence. But uh, farther, farther down south, a lot of them's home was, uh, they, they fired them off for their jobs. They wouldn't give them jobs. And they couldn't pay the mortgage on their homes, so they foreclosed and took their homes. And some of them's homes got burned down. Oh, yes. And here in Greenville, they did burn a cross in a white a person's yard who was a Baha'i. And uh, they burned a cross in her yard. Well, you know, we got threats. Like they were going to burn the house down and they were going to do this and going to do that. But they never did it. Now, when did you see things starting to change as far as these uh, negative attitudes toward integration? 
Well, really, this just, what I've just explained to you, that went on for quite a while. But you know that the, the Martin Luther King, all of that combined, there was a lot of, you know what that was like. But we weren't trying to integrate. We were just trying to teach the faith. But I guess to some people, that's what we were doing, trying to inter- have integration. But that wasn't it. And we never said that was it. And we never acted in the way that that was it. We just wanted to teach the faith. What do you think of the changes that have happened over the past 50 years? I tell you, I never thought I'd live to see it. I even never thought I would live to see the day where the black and white children went to the same school. I never thought I'd see the day where if you were hungry and travel, you could go in a restaurant and eat or have a hotel available for you to spend the night. I never thought I'd see those things. And I, not only did they, I never thought I'd see them going to school together, but I definitely had no dream that it would ever happen that they'd be marrying each other. That was beyond my dream. <laughs> that was even beyond my thoughts. Because when I was young, when I grew up, and even my older children, when they grew up, they couldn't go have a sandwich somewhere. Mm-mm. They couldn't use a restroom. Couldn't, couldn't go to the library, and although we were property taxpayers. But I'm sure you remember all about the integration. I really never thought I'd see that. I never thought I'd live long enough to see that. It's been a great change. This is not the world that I grew up in. And to see a black president elected to the presidency of the United States of America, that was beyond any of my thoughts. Never thought I'd live to see that. But I love it. During those times in the 60s in particular, when you were having to deal with this racism, what kept you from having a chip on your shoulder against these white folks that were doing these oppressive things? Well, I don't know. I I just never had any hatred towards anybody. That just wasn't me. Mm -hmm. Because I figured just because Certain groups did mean things and terrible things to people. I figured God would take care of all of that, not me. I didn't let all of the hatred and the prejudice and all of that affect my heart because I always believed and I always knew that we all were God's creation. We were created from the same substance or the same dust or whatever you want to call it. I always knew that. And just because of what man did, 
That don't mean that it was the will of God. I always knew that. And I never let it affect my spirit or, or who I was. I didn't like it. I didn't like it, and I knew it wasn't right, and I knew it wasn't fair and just. But I know we we had no protection of the law. Mm-mm. Can you imagine what your life would have been like if you had not had the Baha'i faith? What? How do you think your outlook in the world would have been different? I imagine I could have become a person who hated other people for the things they did. I think I could have learned to hate people. But I didn't get to that point. And you think it was because of the Baha'i faith? Of course it was because of the high, Baha'i faith. And why, why is that? Well, you know, when you know the truth, when you find out what the truth is, it lifts the burden off of you, and you are, are more, I guess, of the kind of human being that you were created to be, because you become spiritual instead of being filled with hatred, you're filled with the spirit and the love of God. Yes, the Baha'i faith changed my life. I could have, I don't know where I could have wound up being like. Because the pressures, you know, was, it seemed like was getting worse. And the unfairness and unjust. And you felt helpless because you couldn't do anything about it. I don't know, but the, the Baha'i faith is what kept me on the right path. <laughs> Lily, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me your story and to share your thoughts with us. Well, it was nice talking with you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lily Amber Crombie, a 90-year-old woman who became a Baha'i during the civil rights era in the South. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. O children of men, know ye not why we created you all from the same dust, that no one should exalt himself over the other? Ponder at all times in your hearts how ye were created. Since we have created you all from one same substance, it is incumbent on you to be even as one soul, to walk with the same feet, eat with the same mouth, and dwell in the same land, that from your inmost being, by your deeds and actions, the signs of oneness and the essence of detachment may be made manifest.
Such is my counsel to you, O concourse of light. Heed ye this counsel, that ye may obtain the fruit of holiness from the tree of wondrous glory.
this great human garden Even as flowers grow and blend together side by side Bye.
side by side by
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.